Um, morning, everyone. My name's Diddy, if I haven't met you. Um, I will be reading from uh, Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 18, down to chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, now, if you don't have a Bible, um, there's actually Bibles at the back. Uh, feel free to grab one if you don't have one. And um, it's actually, you can take it home and have it. It's a gift from the church. Uh, so Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, Provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you have you because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Hey, good morning again, everyone. Um, if you are new, my name is RJ. I'm the associate pastor here in Tungabi Baptist Church. Um, before I begin, allow me to say a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the availability of your word that we can read it, we can understand it. But also, Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives so that we will not just be hearers of your word, but we'll be doers of it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this picture here, this is Ben. Ben just became a Christian a month ago after attending Christianity Explained with a friend. Uh, he's been very excited with his newfound faith. But lately... Ben has been struggling with how his faith applies to his day-to-day -day life. For example, Ben commutes to work. He catches the bus every morning and often all the seats will be taken except for the seat reserved for the disabled, pregnant, or elderly. Ben follows the rules and he decides not to sit in there. But quite often enough, someone else will sit in there who's not supposed to be in there with no regard to those who actually need it. And he starts to think, actually just sit there next time. Then Ben takes the train, and quite often he'll notice some people don't even scan their Opal cards and, and are getting a free ride. Ben thought, why do I have to follow the rules when others are not? This week when he got to work, he was told that his colleague Todd is not around. And so he has to cover some of his work. Now he's sure Todd is not really sick, but simply has a hangover after a big weekend. Ben thought, why should I act responsibly when others are not? Ben gets home. His wife is angry at their teenager over something. And so his wife points out that he doesn't do anything to help. She says he needs to be more involved, to be more understanding, to be a better husband and a father. Ben kept quiet. But he thought, why is it always me? I'm not the only problem here. And so just before bed, 
Ben thought, what is the point? Why should I comply to all these rules when no one else is? Why should I act moral when everyone else seems to do whatever they want without any consequences? Why do I have to be the better person all the time? And he thought sometimes being a Christian doesn't really help because now I am obliged to be the good person. Now, that was not really Ben. That was just a stock photo from the internet that I took. But see, Ben's thoughts and feelings will be very typical to a lot of Christians today. See, when you become a Christian, there's no sudden changes in your day-to-day -day life that you still have to wake up to go to work. You still have to take the same train. You still have, to, you still have the same workload in your workspace. Like your spouse will be the same. Your kids doesn't suddenly turn angelic. But what changes now is how you see and how you understand things. Your worldview suddenly change. And this is why the primary command, I believe, is goes back to chapter 3, verse 1. It says that since then, right, since you have been raised with Christ, meaning that you're, since you're now a Christian, set your heart on things above. Meaning change your, change your motivation. And then verse 2, set your minds on things above. Change your mindset. Change your worldview. So the only things that change is how you understand and how you approach life. And see, our passage is really a bunch of rules and commands. But you cannot separate these rules from the previous passages. Because often when we come to passages like this, you'll see this in Ephesians. You might see this in, uh, in 1 Peter as well. And, and we love um, dissecting what exactly the command is telling us that we, we try to understand, well, what is this submission? What does it mean to obey? When should I obey and when should I shouldn't? But today, I think I just want to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Because as we will see, that how you obey the rules and how you function in society really greatly depends on how you understand life itself. And here's the context of this passage. Uh, during the time of Paul, in the first century, there's a cultural understanding of how things should operate, right? As much as today, that, you know, everyone has a certain positions in life and regulations that we need to, to follow. Uh, that we have rules on the road, we have rules at home, uh, we have regulations in the government and in our workplace. Because rules are important. They bring order, they bring expectations in our day-to-day -day life. And in ancient Rome... One of these structures in a society is the household. Now, I think often when we think of a household, we think of a family. Now, in ancient Rome, it's not just a family. See, the household is your work. It's your family business. And so a household can be composed of five people or it can be made up up to 50 people. That you can actually have a number of families within the household. And so the household is the basic functioning unit that's really the backbone of the Roman, Roman economy at the time. And so there is this common household code at the time of how individual people, even different classes and categories within the household, not how they should function, and not just for the purpose of that household, but really for the, for the growth and, and, and the expansion of the Roman Empire. 
Now, it's very interesting that Paul uses this common household that's circulating at the time to instruct, right? Not, you know, not, not, he's not making up something new, but what he does is that he brings in the household codes and he Christianizes them in, in their context. So he doesn't just say, you know, now that you're a Christian, you can disobey Rome, you can go against society, that here's what you should do instead as Christians. No, he's basically saying, now we follow the common societal guidelines. There's nothing wrong with them. But now we need to understand and we need to obey them in light of our Christian faith. That's what he's doing here. So he takes the modern setting and culture and he looks at it through the Christian lens. And I think that's very interesting because like the early church, we have common structures today and regulations and rules in our society that we still need to follow and obey. And, and see, the rules, because we're Christians, it, it doesn't really change for us, right? But what changes is now how we see and how we follow them in light of our Christian faith. And so just like the early church back then, often we will struggle to see and understand how are we now to function in this modern world in light of our future hope. And so we're asking the question, why should I bother? What, what difference does my faith make in today's day-to-day -day struggle? And here are the three things that I believe you need to understand in order to see things in light of your Christian faith. And the three things that I wanted to show you are these. That who we are will shape what we do. And why we do things really shapes how we do it. And what Christ has done will shape who we are. So in a way, it's, it's very circulating that they're connected to, to one another. And it might be a little bit confusing, but let me go through them. Uh, firstly, who we are shapes what we do. Uh, first thing that you need to understand is kind of, you know, quite simply, what is this? The subject and the object of those rules. Uh, look who it is given to and for whom, right? The rules are given to, again, specific roles and grouping within the household that holds different authorities. Uh, you have the husband, which is usually the head of the household. You have the wife that manages a lot of the house affairs. You have the children, which are basically your workers at the time, right? Then you have slaves if you can afford it. And remember, this is not just family. This is technically a company, right? The kids don't go to school. The parents don't go to a workplace outside of home. Every day, they're working from home. Every day, they're, they're schooling from home. It's like COVID times. And so it makes sense that a household will have these different roles and authorities, much like we have at work today. And so... In a way, there's this code of ethics at that time. And notice that the commands were given to, a different, to, to different peoples. Wives do this, husbands do this. But the person benefiting is someone else, right? So wives submit to your husbands. Like the wife is submitting, the husband's receiving the action. Husbands love your wife, right? The husband is commanded. The wife is the one benefiting, right? The command is given to a person for the benefit of another. It doesn't say, husbands, make your wife submit. Or wives, make your husbands love you. That each person is being called to do something, not directly for their benefit, but for another person. Now, I know I'm kind of stating the obvious here, but I want to start with that because often we, when we hear 
sermons like this, when sermons like this comes up, like again, in Ephesians and, and others, we like to look at the other person, whether it's our spouse or our, ki- or our kids, and we like to see if they're listening because we think it's for them. All right? We're thinking they should be listening to this. That we're more worried about what other people are not doing rather than what we should be doing. And so people have sometimes used these verses to control, to enforce hierarchy and authority for their benefits. That husbands telling their wives to, to submit whatever they say because they argue that the Bible tells them to do so. Or parents forcing their kids to do something but because, because they argue that the, but God is commanding them to obey in everything. But see, then you're missing the point. That's not the point of the passage. Even look at look how Paul puts it. In fact, this is, so everything else is quite common at the time, but Paul adds these things, right? Verse 19, this is what's new. Husbands, love your wife and do not be harsh with them. In ancient Rome, it was very uncommon for people to marry for love. Often people will marry to gain economic advantages. But here, husbands loving your wife, fathers not embittering your children, not discouraging them. Chapter 4, verse 1, masters, provide for your slaves. They're, they're, not just, uh, they're not just your property. They're people. Provide what is fair. And so the, the ancient household codes are usually about th- those below having to submit to those in authority. But here, Paul's that those in authority are now being called, because they're Christians, to lead in humility and in love. Now, again, we might not see it, but that will be very, very challenging in the first century. That the very class and grouping that holds the highest authority within the household is being called to be gentle, to be caring, and to be considerate to those under them. That even though there might be differences in authority, there is always mutual respect within. That those on top are actually called to, to, to humble themselves, to value and respect even those those. Uh, Sorry, those below them. And the reason for this is back in chapter 3, verse 11. Because Paul says, because now what Christ has done, there's no Gentile, there's no Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now, Paul is not saying that we now eliminate the social order or the, or the, the, the culture of the day. He's saying that the Christian identity now becomes primary and your, your, your religious privileges, whether you're Jew or Gentile, your cultural identity, whether you're barbarian or Scythian or so on, your economic status, whether you're slave or you're free, that, that becomes secondary. Not they're not important anymore, but they don't fully define who you are. Instead, he says, verse 12, this is your primary identity, that everyone who is in Christ, Paul says, is now chosen holy, and dearly loved by God. See, that's who you are primarily. Your, back, your background, you might still be a Jew. Your, your situation, you might still be a slave. But that's secondary to who you are now in God. And that's why he says, following verse 12, now, if that's who you are, well, this is what you do. You put on the godly character of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Now, what does that look like in a household? 
Well, it looks like this. Wives submitting, husbands loving, kids obeying, slaves working sincerely, and masters being fair and honestly providing. Because for wives to submit, for husbands to love, for kids to obey, and so on, they will need those characters, compassion, kindness, humility, and so on. They need Christ in them to act that way. See, your Christian identity helps define your personal character, which is then expressed through your day-to-day interaction with the people around you. That knowing who you are shapes and should shape, could shape and should shape what you do. That it doesn't matter if you are the CEO of the company or you're the trainee, that you are called to do what you're supposed to do in light of who you are in Christ Jesus. Right? Your work and your role, it doesn't change. It's still the same. But because of your primary identity as Christians, you do things differently from now on. Uh, imagine... Uh, an oncologist, an, an oncologist doctor. Uh, every day she sees dozens of, uh, of patients facing terminal cancers. And I guess she sees her primary identity in that workplace as the senior, as the senior doctor, the one in charge. And so her aim is to, to do the job well, to diagnose patients well, to, to increase their, their, their mortality, their, 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 uh, their quality of life. But imagine that she was also a cancer survivor, that she went through exactly what her patients are going through to fight cancer. Now, because of that experience, she still aims to, be, to do the good job of diagnosing patients well, but because of her experience, it completely changes what she's doing. She's able to empathize with them. She has more compassion. She's more patient with them in the way she speaks. Same job a different approach. Now look at chapter 2, verse 13. Look at it in your Bible. Here's your life-changing experience. Paul says that you were dead in your sins, but God made you alive. That's your primary identity, and that ought to change how you live. That should change your heart. That should change your mind. It doesn't change the rules, but now you see society, you see your work, you see the world and your life in a completely different mindset. And that is why that should lead us to our second point, that why we do things, our motivation shapes how we do it, right? Our motives shapes our effort. Because of who we are, it changes why we do things. Now, did you see how Paul adds something in the end of most of those commands? He says that you're doing it for the Lord. That what Paul is doing is changing our perspective on who it is for. Again, because everyone, everyone does something with a certain motivation. Or to be more accurate, everyone is motivated by someone by a person for example that you might uh, you might endure your work that you don't like because you're doing it for yourself so that you can afford the car or the holiday that you've always wanted so you're motivated by the salary because the salary fuels fuels what benefits you right or you might take up another job or you might do longer hours why because the interest rates are going up and you're doing it what what for for your family to put food on the table to send them to school and so on now that's not a bad thing But see, we're always doing things for someone. Or let's say you actually actually love your job, 
right? You love your work, not so much of the pay, but because you believe in the company uh, that's running it, you believe in the vision of, of, of the CEO, the vision of the company, and so you trust that this is really worth living for. It's worth going up, getting up to work early for. Again, motivation fueled by someone else. But look at what Paul is now suggesting. Now, he says, don't do it for others. Don't, don't even do it for yourself. Do it for God. From now on, since you're a Christian, the primary direction and the motivation of your life is to God and for God. You're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it for God. And the shift of why you do things will shape how you do it. The issue here is the, the motivation of your heart. What Paul is addressing here is why you should bother following these rules. Because as I said, it's easy to do the right thing with the wrong motive. Right? Externally, you can do something that benefits others, but ultimately, you're doing it for, for yourself. That you can, you can come and, and, and attend the working bee, right? And it looks like you're doing it for others, you're doing it for the church, but you're really doing it for yourself to make yourself look good. Look at verse 22. Slaves or servants, they might be obeying, but only when the boss is looking. Why? To make themselves look good or to avoid getting in trouble. And so Paul says that even if they're not looking, verse 23, work hard at it. Put your heart at what you're doing. It means that your, your outward behavior alone is not enough. What matters is the state of your heart behind it. Because the deepest transformation happens internally when we keep Jesus the reason for, what, for why we do what we do. Now, I know that sounds very cliche to say that we're doing it for God. Because the reality is we, I know it's how hard that can be. And I think there's no easy solution for that. And that's why in chapter 4, verse 2, immediately, right after, Paul gave this command to devote yourself to prayer, to remind yourself of who you are, remind yourself of, of God's presence in your life. Because it's, it's hard to do it for God. But Paul is saying, don't, don't do it to suck up to your boss. Don't do it to impress a girl. Don't do it to make people in the church make them think that you're spiritual. Don't do it to get the approval of your parents, but do it to please the Lord. You're doing it for God, that the ultimate reason for doing anything in this life is because it glorifies our God. See, isn't it confronting somehow that, that you're, not, you're not even doing it for your spouse or your kids or yourself. You're doing it for God. Because your, your spouse can fail you, your, your kids can, can disappoint you, your work can sometimes and often will just use you and abuse you. And doing it for yourself will turn you bitter and cold towards others. But do it for God because he will never fail you. Because he's the Lord of all. That's why just a verse earlier in verse 17, Paul says that whatever you do, whether you're speaking, whether you're doing something, now do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, everything in life is now motivated by the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. That notice in our passage, right? In our passage, Paul doesn't name Jesus, but he calls him Lord repeatedly. Right? Lord means master, right? 
Paul is really trying to highlight who is in charge here, that, that when wives submit to their husbands or when children obey their parents or when slaves obey their masters, in the end, they're obeying God because, God because God is really the one in charge of things. That in chapter 4, verse 1, even Paul reminds the masters, the lords, that you have a Lord in heaven. He's saying that there's always someone above you. That if a... For example, if a private in, in, a, in, a, in an army, the lowest rank in the army, was told what to do by the sergeant, that sergeant will, be, will, will have received a, a task by the staff sergeant who was probably given a mission by the lieutenant of the platoon, which, which was given a bigger mission by the major general, which was possibly tasked by the defense secretary or the defense minister who was tasked by the president or the prime minister. So in the same way, Paul is saying, there's always someone in charge. I, I know your job might seem boring and menial, having to submit and to obey to all these people, but don't forget who is Lord over all, who is the master over all, and do it for him. Because he's worth it. But why? See, back in verse 17, whatever you do, do whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why? Giving thanks to the Father through him. Now, why exactly should we be grateful? Here's our last point. What exactly has Christ done for us that everything that we do is now shaped by that? Now, look at the commands again. To submit, to love, to obey, to be, to be patient, to be sincere, to be fair. Look at it for a second. See, there's nothing in there that Christ has not done for us. He submitted his will to the Father. He loved us when there is nothing worth loving about us. He obeyed to the point of death. He is patient towards our rebellion, and he didn't, he didn't just do it out of, of obligation and duty, but he did it out of love and sincerity. He became the husband that you needed to be. He became the wife and child that you were called to be. He lived the life that you cannot live, and he gave that righteousness that he earned to you. That on the cross, Jesus Christ did all that for you. And that's why in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 to 10, it says that in Christ, right? Because of what Christ has done in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. That you have been perfected that there's nothing else to add there's nothing else to do but to continue in living for him and in him that in christ you have been forgiven you have been perfected and that changes who you are which changes what you do which motivates how you do it and one hymn writer puts it this way he says to see the law that christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. See, you used to be a slave. You and I used to be a slave, slave to sin, slave to death, slave to ourselves. But you were brought, you were bought, sorry, not from one slavery to another, but you were bought with the, with the blood of Christ to turn you into a child. And so that you now obey not out of obligation and duty, but out of the wonderful delight to please the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And 
Christ, we thank you for all the things that you have done for us, of everything that you have, you have accomplished for our sake. And Holy Spirit, we ask that we will be constantly reminded of who we are now in the Lord Jesus. That when things get tough in, 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 in loving our wives or submitting to our husbands or, or even just being um, faithful to, to the work that we have been called to do, Lord, help us to be reminded that you are Lord of all, that we do things not out of duty and obligation now to earn your favor. No, that you, you have, you see us now as your ultimate treasure. And so, Lord, we pray that we, we live our lives now in, in light of that truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.